Um, and we're, we're in Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 21. Someone have a page number on the Blue Bible? 969, page 969. Great, let me read it. I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray together. Father, please, would you speak to us this afternoon? Not just speak to us, but Father, please, would you open up our hearts, expose our hearts to what you want us to see about this topic particularly, about the heart of anger. Help us to bring that to Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so please keep that passage open so you can see kind of where I'm, where I'm going with it, what I'm explaining. It's important that you have it in front of you. But as you read it, did you think, what, what were you thinking? See, as I, re- as I read it, I look at it and I think, I should be judged as though I'm a murderer. That's how I see it. The thing is, it's not just me. I think that's probably true of everybody in this room. It's a pretty shocking statement, what Jesus is saying. What right do I have to say that to you? But that is the sort of shock we're meant to feel as we read this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus wants the people, wants us to see how radical Jesus' kingdom living is for his people. That it's not just about our actions, but about our hearts. Let me give you a quick recap of what we've got to. We're going through this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been speaking about what it means to live in his kingdom. What are the kingdom values? It's been a picture of kind of blessedness in the Beatitudes and then of being salt and light to the world. And last week we heard Jesus talking about the law and how he's going to fulfill it, how he has fulfilled it. Remember John T. helpfully gave us that illustration of the acorn, which is a picture of the law. The law is a good thing, which has potential for something more. It had potential to lead the life of of God's people to live as God intended in his kingdom, except the people kept failing time and time again. And so Jesus, the Son of God, came to fulfill that law and to see that acorn fulfill its potential to be that oak tree in Jesus. That is how we can apply the law through Christ today. That's what we got to last week. And that principle is going to be really key for us to understand because from today, for the next few weeks, we're going to see various different scenarios how Jesus applies this principle of acorn to oak tree, of the fulfillment of the law. You're going to spot it every time Jesus says, you have heard it was said. That's how it starts today. That's when he takes something in the law, the acorn, and then he expands it. He says, but let me tell you. That's the pattern. And today he starts with something that every human being that has ever graced this planet has experienced, and that is anger. Even Jesus experienced it. 
We all know what it's like. But Jesus here isn't here to give us some practical tips on anger management. He goes much, much deeper. He's going to dig into the root of anger to expose our hearts with this issue. To expose the murder that goes in our hearts. Look at it again. Here's what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's one of the Ten Commandments. People nod along. Yes, I know that one. Even those who aren't followers of Jesus would wholly, I hope, nod along and say, yeah, I'm with you on this. Every country you look around, the law, there's, they would agree that murder is bad, it's wrong. And it should rightly be subject to judgment. People who murder should be punished because they're taking a human being made in the image of God and saying, you are unworthy of life. Everybody's nodding along. But, says Jesus, here Jesus shows how he fulfills this law, the expansion, the oak tree from the acorn of this law. And he goes on verse 22, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Same phrase. Jesus is linking those two things together. Murder and anger on par, they are both subject to the same judgment, says Jesus. Now that sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? Surely in our minds, murder is far more extreme than getting angry at someone. Let me read on. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, or you fool, more, that's the word in Greek. They are basically the same words in Aramaic and Greek. They stand for the same sort of thing. Those are the two big languages in the cultures at the time. In English, they sort of have this meaning of moron, idiot, numbskull, numpty, blockhead. I could keep going on. You get the gist. Blockhead, what a good word. You get, you get the gist. But say that about a brother or sister, you are subject to judgment. The brother or sister makes us think, oh, is this only just about the church and about believers? But I think this principle applies beyond. In verse 25, later, Jesus talks about anger outside the church, in the court. This applies to all. The point is this. The bar of anger against anybody is really low. Those words, raka and mori, are fairly common insults. Stuff that's not bad enough to be bleeped out on a video. It's like somebody muttering idiot under their breath in anger. Not even that. Thinking that in your mind or feeling that in your heart against somebody. Jesus is saying that is murder in your heart. Murder and anger, subject to the same judgment. Jesus says in verse 22, subject to judgment, answerable to the court, in danger of the fire of hell. I don't think that's a progression. I think Jesus is saying, look, God is saying judgment will happen in God's eternal court, which will result in the danger of the fire of hell. And hell is a reality. It's not just an image or a conceptual idea. This is the reality of ultimate judgment of God. And so we need to feel the seriousness of the anger of sin, the sin of anger. When we get angry, we don't just blow over it thinking, oh, I've just snapped. I've just lost it in the heat of the moment. It is serious. So here's what Jesus is saying. You know that murder is subject to judgment under law. But when you get angry with somebody, if you call them an idiot, even in your heart, you will receive the same sentence as for murder. Now just imagine you were sitting there in the crowd at that point in time. You would be stunned. There would be stunned silence. That seems so extreme. But that is exactly the expansive nature of Jesus' kingdom. 
This is the fulfillment of the acorn of the law about murder. What Jesus is doing is taking an external action and tracing that action back to the heart, and he's writing it upon the hearts of his people. Jesus shows us that the Old Testament law was never meant to just be about the external act of murder. It was not enough that you just didn't, get, didn't act on your anger. Jesus shows us the expansive nature of the law to say what is going on in your heart when we get angry really matters. Think about anger for a moment. It is a raw, raw emotion. It's one of the basic emotions that human beings all have. Early on, from babies, all the way through life, in all stages and phases, you see anger. Everybody understands what it is. Everybody knows what it feels like to get angry. Everybody knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of anger. Man, even this week as I prepared, it was like God was saying, you're going to preach on anger? Get ready. There are lots of things. I could tell you lots of stories this week. Let me give you one. Thursday morning, getting ready for work. Wife and I upstairs. Kids downstairs. They're four and two. Usually they're okay. Sounds like a foolish idea to leave them, but it's, it's fine. They're usually fine. I was there for a few minutes. Come down the stairs. What do I see? There's a kitchen sink, and there's a chair up against the kitchen sink. So I'm thinking, okay, one of those two has got some water. So I run into the living room. What do I see? The little one, the two-year-old, is playing with a bowl of water. Pretty harmless. I'm like, all, all good until I see a palette of paint. Then I'm thinking, okay, this is bad. Paint is wet. Then I look, what do I look for next? Paper. Is there any paper anywhere? No. Then what am I looking for? Where's the picture? And there I look around, and there on the living room, big, fat, smiley face. <laughs> I lost it. The wife comes running down. What's happened? She lost it. Where else did you put it? In the kitchen. There's another smiley face there. Man, do I hate smiley faces this week. There I was. And because I've been in this passage, I muttered raka under my breath. <laughs> it's not just those things, but it's other things that happen this week. Just when you hear unsolicited advice that comes your way. Criticism. People say things out of love. But could I feel my heart grow in anger? This passage was exposing my heart to say, look, anger is raw. It dwells so deeply in your heart. And it's so powerful. That's the thing about anger. It's like a volcano. When it erupts, everybody around you knows about it. But it's not just the eruption. There's this fallout. The lava spreads. The ash and the cloud linger. And often hidden in that cloud of, of anger ash, you find emotions of hurt, shame, guilt, regret floating around. People express anger in different ways. Some are loud. Some give the cold shoulder. Whatever your disposition, you've got to know, and I'm sure you know, anger is a powerful emotion. But it's also powerful in revealing what is going on in our hearts. Anger blows that crater on things we try and keep dormant in the volcanoes of our hearts. And that is what Jesus is digging out. Why does Jesus link anger with murder? What is he doing as he takes the law about murder and fulfills it by writing it on our hearts in the context of anger? He's exposing that very root. Because anger reveals our belief that we are kings of our lives and our worlds. That's what it reveals. In my kingdom that I live in, I have control and I rule. I am right. I know best. I deserve honor and glory. 
People step in and out of our kingdoms daily, and when they do, they need to be subject to my timeline, my desires, my commands. If they criticize my rule, if they don't see to my control and desires, they are a nuisance. They are a rebel to my kingdom, and we need them gone. That is why I get angry. It could be somebody who's taking ages at the self-service counter. You're, it's eating into your evening. And you're like, how hard can it be? And then you, your anger's going there, and then you see the assistant, and they're having this happy chat, and they haven't even noticed. And you're like, come on, can you move any quicker? Raka, you think to yourself. Or that colleague who turns up to a meeting, he knows a lot and shows, shows you up. They undermine you, they shame you, humiliate you in front of others. You hate that feeling of being exposed, and you mutter idiot under your breath. Or a relative who asks you to do something at an inconvenient time that messes with your control. Like kids who paint on walls just before work. Or like when I live with my parents. They're here today. I didn't know they were coming until very late last minute. I'm just still going to say it because I love them. <laughs> but I swear, most evenings when I live with them, I would hear, Mike, can you come down? What is it? Always something to do with tech. The printer's not working. Are the lights flashing? Have you plugged it in? I can't see the mouse. Move the mouse. Click, click. Is it plugged in? My phone's not working. You get it. I love my parents. But my parents and tech is like a training ground for patience or a breeding ground for anger. That's what it was like. I love them. They're very good with their tech. Now, now what is going on in these instances? Because I believe I am king. And I believe that I have control. I believe that I don't get shamed in my kingdom. So when I lose control of my time or my situation, when I start getting humiliated and my pride is hurt, when we feel like we're being dethroned, anger is that response. To say, look, those are people who are getting in my way, who waste my time, who are an inconvenience, you are unworthy of my presence. Think about it. Why is there so much anger in this world? Because that's exactly how we live. We all have our little mini kingdoms. And as long as people don't interfere with our rules, it's fine. But as soon as somebody intervenes in a way that opposes your kingdom, volcanoes erupt. It's interesting, isn't it? We're shocked when we hear about murder. How can they? And yet we live in a culture where we sort of cancel people all the time, which is essentially a form of murder, isn't it? You're telling somebody, look, you're a nuisance. You are unworthy to be in my presence. Just get out of my way. I want you out of my life. Cancelled. And dare I say, church is not immune to this either. Because our hearts are constantly prone to build these mini kingdoms. And even as we gather and meet with other Christians, these clash of kingdoms can happen. They do happen. Brothers and sisters step on our pride, step into our lives at inconvenient times. Do you, do you see why Jesus is linking murder and anger together? Sure, you might not physically murder, but anger is another way of deeming somebody unworthy. One author describes anger as the drawn sword of humanity. That's a good picture, isn't it? Well, not a good picture. We draw our swords daily when people rebel in our little kingdoms. And that desire to be king has been with us right from the beginning. Genesis 1 to 3 is so foundational. That's exactly what went wrong. God set up his kingdom, one kingdom, one king, where God was king and we were all subject to him. And that was a good place to be, the best place to be. But the first humans stepped up to set up a rival kingdom. They had no hope, no chance, but that's what they did. 
And ever since then, the pattern of humanity is to keep trying to rebuild these little rebellious kingdoms. Straight after Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. They were supposed to be subject to God's rule, and yet we find Cain have his mini kingdom where his pride is dented, his offering is humiliated, and what happens? Genesis 4, he gets very angry, and this leads to the first murder in the Bible. The irony of anger. It so often comes when we feel like we're losing control of our little kingdoms, and as we lose control of our kingdoms, our response is that we lose control of our anger and exposes the ugliness and frailty of the human heart. And when you look at our hearts and you look at the world around us and you think back to God, you think God has every right to be angry with us. He has every right to cancel us. God's anger is righteous in that sense. And yet he doesn't. If you're not a Christian here, this is the radical nature of the gospel story. This is the God that we believe in. Instead of canceling us, God himself comes in the flesh The one king of the true kingdom comes into his own world to take that righteous anger that we deserved upon himself. We should have been canceled, but instead Jesus is. As he's nailed to a cross of wood and lays down his life. See, I told you, anger is powerful, right? We all agree on that. We all know that. But Jesus shows us something that is even more powerful, and that's his love for us. That is what God shows at the cross where he forgives our rebellious hearts, where he deems the unworthy, the cancelable as worthy, with a status now as forgiven children of God, as his brothers and sisters. And as Jesus rises from the grave, he says, look, I, I promise you, if you trust in me, my spirit will come and it will enable us to live with these new hearts that follow Christ, to live kingdom lives. Lives with the oak tree of the law of murder written on our hearts. Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, the Spirit enables us to live that way, to expose that root of anger in our hearts, to bring it to Jesus, and to go and fight against sinful anger. Can you picture a community, a society, a kingdom that lives that sort of way, where the root of anger is constantly taken to Christ, where people don't murder one another with their mouths or their hearts, But instead, there is purity, there is peace, there is humility, there is patience. What does Jesus call us to do with our anger? Just from the first two verses, firstly, he says, take your anger straight to Christ. You've got to know his forgiveness. Some of us in this room right now will feel that burden, that guilt and the shame of our anger. Let the Holy Spirit remind you that God has forgiven us even in our anger. That if we genuinely come to God in repentance, Jesus forgives. He's shown us that through his body and his blood as he took on the righteous anger of God that we deserved. If your heart feels raw and exposed after getting angry at somebody this week, even today, take that anger to Christ and know God's grace and his forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, pray that the Spirit would uproot that heart of anger, that you would fight against it, not just reactively, but proactively, living out pure hearts. Whenever anger crouches at the door, there you have Christ. Secondly, take your anger to Christ to reveal your idols. Think about why you got angry in that moment. What does it reveal about your heart? Don't just ignore it. Are you looking for too much control? Are you too proud? Are you too self-righteous? 
Where are you sitting on your throne as king? Where might you be subjecting others to your will and desires and getting angry that they're not listening to you? What is going on when I get angry at my kids for painting on the walls? What they did was wrong, but do I need to get that angry? They need discipline, sure, but discipline doesn't always need anger. It's because I feel like I lost control. Because I believe in my kingdom they should behave a certain way and fit to my schedule. That they shouldn't inconvenience me like that. See, in those moments of anger, don't bury those idols, but take them to Jesus and ask the Spirit to show you to uproot those idols that linger in our hearts. The third thing I think we can do is we take our anger to Christ to learn what right anger looks like. So I feel like I need to say something on righteous anger. Because you might be asking, isn't anger sometimes right and good? You may have heard Christians talk about it like that. And it's true, there is righteous anger. Which is why I said, everybody, even Jesus, has experienced anger. Because Jesus himself, the Son of God, got angry. Most famously, when he walked into the temple, into his father's house, and he saw traitors there. He, dishonoring God's name, he overturned the tables. How dare you? He got angry at the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who were leading the people astray in Matthew 23. And that's where you see what righteous anger really looks like. Anger is right when it's about God's honor and his name being protected. Anger is right when it's to protect the mistreatment of humans made in God's image, particularly those who are brothers and sisters of Christ. So it's right to get angry when people mock God. That's why we never take God's name in vain. It dishonors God. That should make us angry when others do. We should get angry when our brother or sister is mistreated for their faith and persecuted or being led astray through false teaching or being abused by ungodly leadership. That should make us angry. We should get angry at injustice done to others who are made in God's image. We should get angry when we see knife crime in the city, in Croydon, when we see modern-day slavery and racism, when we see refugees being mistreated, when we see wars in Ukraine, in Israel and Palestine, in Myanmar, etc. It's good and right to be angry at those things. But let me just warn us at this point, this goes for me as well, you've got to be careful not to hide behind that phrase, righteous anger, to justify ourselves. Because I realize I do get angry at those things, but I don't get half as angry as other things that annoy me. And I try and justify them as injustices to me and righteous anger. But more often than not, it's because my little kingdom is front and center. My selfish concerns and inconveniences take precedent, which makes me think, actually, it's quite rare that we are purely righteously angry. So just be careful of that. But also know that it is something that we can grow in. By listening to Jesus, by letting him write his law upon our hearts, as the Spirit continues to grow us in Christ-likeness, we live in his kingdom. We, as, as we grow in that, we'll become angry for God's honor. Just like Jesus does. We'll grow to be angry for the faith and justice of others, just like Jesus does. And righteous anger can be such a powerful driver that drives us to care more for God's name. It can drive us to care more for those who are persecuted and mistreated as fellow believers. It should drive us to seek the justice of those in the city who are ignored, who are cancelled, who are dismissed as inconveniences to the worldly kingdoms. Murder in our hearts, that's what Jesus has come to deal with and to reveal and expose. But look, I'm going to do this next point really quickly. It's really short and brief. 
But we've got to understand that there's a further dimension to our anger. It's not just our vertical relationship between me and God, but the volcano of anger will affect people around us too. We can't just resolve it in our hearts and leave the anger cloud lingering around. And so Jesus goes on, verses 23 to 26, really simple, seek reconciliation. This drawn sword of humanity too often maims people. It even slays relationships, where in essence essence it functionally looks like murder, where people just blank each other and ignore each other, try to remove them from their lives. And here is Jesus expanding that vision of the Lord to say, look, it's not just about our rebellious hearts, but a revolutionary kingdom culture that we need to live under. And he gives two examples here in verse 23 in the church and verse 25 in the court. And Jesus is saying, look, those in his kingdom, we need to promote a culture that seeks reconciliation within and outside the church. That is what is distinctive about those who are in Christ who live in his kingdom. We are a people who seek to reconcile and not let anger take root in our community. Look at verse 23 again. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Did you notice it's a bit weird? Because he's been talking about getting angry in verses 21 and 22. The person in view here is the one, who get, is, is the one who's making others angry. And I think Jesus is pushing us against the danger of an individualistic mindset. Of, oh, as long as I've resolved my anger with God, that's okay. And he's saying, no, that's not right in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, look, if you've caused anger, go and reconcile. It is our responsibility as a whole to take our anger to Jesus. Whether we get angry or whether we've invoked anger, that is what the kingdom looks like. It uproots the seeds of anger among us, not just in our individual hearts. Jesus teaches four principles, I think, about reconciliation here. I'll I'll rattle through these just because of time. Here's the first thing. Jesus calls us to reconcile before we worship. Look at verse 23. There you have the person offering your gift at the altar. There you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. See, it looks good. They're, They're doing the right thing. They're going to worship God. They're giving a gift, the heart of worship. Surely that takes priority, we think. And yet Jesus says, if you know there is anger lingering in your relationship, if you know you've invoked anger to a brother or sister, they have something against you, then drop what you're doing and go and reconcile. Even before you come to worship. Worship of God is so tightly linked with how we treat and relate with others around us. It's a contradiction of what it means to be one with Christ, but not with his body, with the church. And if our relationships with others are severed, we cannot worship God wholeheartedly. Now, you might not be able to agree on everything, but reconciliation does not mean uniformity in everything, but it means unity. It means we draw near to one another, seeking reconciliation of our anger, seeking peace. That is what kingdom people do. Here's the second thing. Seek reconciliation quickly. There's an immediacy to this whole thing. In, case of, in the case of worship, just drop it and go. In the case of the court, verse 25, settle matters quickly. Because there's a real danger in letting anger linger and simmer. Because sooner or later it will boil over. Nothing good comes out of it. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 4. In your sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Or else, the devil will get a foothold. 
It's like a slow drip on a rock. Let that continue to drip, and one day that rock will smash. Stop the drip, or else the devil will get a foothold, and he'll use that sin to pry into your heart, into your relationship, and tear you apart. So be quick to reconcile. Here's the third thing. Reconcile to create a culture. Jesus isn't, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not speaking to just church leaders. Of course, we have more responsibility, but he's speaking to all, the, all his followers, all believers, brothers and sisters, to say, look, we have a responsibility together to create a culture of reconciliation where we're quick to do it, where we seek to do it before we even worship. Aware of invoking anger, quick to reconcile, humble, gracious, forgiving. That is a powerful picture of gospel reconciliation. Jesus said in his Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That is what we're supposed to look like. And that ties to the last thing. As we seek reconciliation, we we show the world what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. Jesus moves us from the altar to to the courtroom in verse 25. This is when we stand with adversaries or opponents who are taking us to court. And think back to to being called salt and light. We are called to take those kingdom values into the world around us. Even when we stand against opponents, that means we are quick to settle and reconcile. That's what we want the world to see and say. Man, those Christians, they are salty. They are peacemakers. They are so quick and humble to reconcile. We want to draw people to the light of Christ to say, look, that is what Christ does. That's his ministry of reconciliation. We're out of time. I can't touch on verse 26. Let me just close with it. Just think about these questions for a moment. Where, where does anger linger in your life? Where do you think you've built up your own kingdom? Where do you need to seek forgiveness in Christ because of your anger? What idols are being revealed in your heart? What about with others? Where do you need to seek a ministry of reconciliation? Pray and ask God to turn your hearts towards reconciliation, to seek forgiveness, to be peaceable. And as we do that, just can you picture what a beautiful, radical community that would look like in this world? A world, a a community where people live to uproot their anger, take it to Christ, to seek reconciliation, to forgive each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let's live out our calling as children of God. And let's do that for God's glory. Amen. Let's spend some time reflecting and praying. Perhaps that's what you need to do. To confess. To say, there is anger in my life, Lord. Please forgive me. Perhaps there's an idol in your heart that you need to take to to the Lord. Or perhaps you need to pray about somebody, perhaps even in this room, that you need to reconcile with. Lord Jesus, we find your your word so challenging at times. It's so exposing at times. And yet that is the beauty of who you are, of your great power, of your great kingdom, to uproot those things that are deep in our hearts that we try to hide and to bring them to you. 
to know that in Christ we are forgiven and by your spirit that we can live lives that push against this sin of anger. Help us to hear the warning for us that need to hear that warning. And help us to be comforted for those who need to be comforted. Help us above all else to be those who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers, who live to fight anger, to live according to your kingdom so that we might, might show your salt and light to this watching world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.